Well, if I had to guess, I'd say the tree was close to 70 feet tall. And it hung precariously over my brother-in-law's house. The professional was going to charge somewhere around $2,000 to take it out. It was over 100 years old. And because of its age and its health and the way it was perched precariously over the center of his roof, my brother-in-law decided he needed to take it out so that it didn't fall and hit the house. But the professional wanted $2,000 to do it. My brother-in-law had a chainsaw. He had a bunch of friends. And really, how hard could it be? You're getting a little bit ahead of me. So uh, my brother-in-law decided this is what he would do. He would take a chain, tie it around the trunk of the tree up fairly high, tie the other end to his truck, put a buddy in his truck, and as he cut the tree down, if his friend would drive away in the truck at the same time that he cut the tree, that the tree would fall away from the house instead of toward the house, and all would be well. And so that's what he decided to do. He put the chain around the trunk of the tree, tied the other end to the bumper of his truck, and he cut a wedge, one wedge in the tree, the way that he wanted it to fall, like you do. And then he started to cut the other wedge, and the tree started to crack, and it started to fall, and his friend hit the gas pedal of the truck and started to drive it away from the house. And for a brief moment, you could believe this was going to work just as it was scripted. The tree started to move ever so slightly away from the house until the chain snapped. And it went flying over top of my brother-in-law's truck. The chain did. And the tree, which was once falling away from the house, now fell right toward the house and landed right in the middle of my brother-in-law's roof, putting a dent probably two feet deep in the ridgeline of his roof. It was a real disaster. But the tree wasn't done yet. This particular tree had a much greater appetite for destruction. And so as the crown of the tree then started to pull the weight of the tree towards the left side of his house, as you're looking at the back, it rolled along the ridgeline of the roof, taking out his brick chimney, which now unimpeded, it could fall all the way to the ground, except that they had a balcony on the second floor that the tree took out and landed as it smashed their first story deck. The total bill was somewhere north of $30,000. But they did save $2,000 in hiring a professional to cut down the tree. And so, you know, there are times in your life when you have something that you can do yourself, that it's okay. And then there are times when you just need to get help. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed some help? Like something you couldn't resolve on your own? Maybe it was a project. Maybe it was like cutting down a tree or some project that you knew you couldn't complete on your own. Maybe it was moving. You know, it seems like this summer, my family and I have helped a lot of uh, friends move. I've spent more than my fair share of time in the back of a moving truck this summer. And it seems like other than when you're moving, we all have a hard time asking for help, don't we? But when it's time to move, I mean, everybody, you know, buy some pizzas and get all your friends over. It's time to, time to get for he- some help. But we are a proud people in general. I think uh, that's more true in America than any place else. But we are, have a hard time asking for help, don't we? You know, there's all sorts of times in life when we get into a jam, we get stuck, we can't find our way out, we uh, can't get out of the mess we've made on our own. And sometimes those moments are funny. They make memories because they didn't cause much damage or the damage that they caused was at least easily repaired. But sometimes they're painful. Sometimes it's harder uh, to get out of them and the stakes are higher and the damage is incredibly severe. 
You know, we've been looking at this story in Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, you might open them there. Luke chapter 15. Uh, it's a story that Jesus told. It's on, if you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one of these on the floor around you. It's page 730 on this Bible, Luke 15. Uh, it's the story uh, of the prodigal son. Uh, it's often called the story of the prodigal son, I should say. Prodigal is a word that means extravagant. Uh, I prefer the story of the lost son because lost kind of identifies where the son was at the time. It's not so much about his personality. It's about what he had run away from, what he was leaving. And so uh, we're going to talk about that story again. It's a story that Jesus told. And to do that, every week we've had somebody else come and tell this story. Uh, This week, I'm going to invite my good friend, Heather Winty, to come up to the stage. She's going to tell a story. Can you give Heather a big hand? Now, Heather and her uh, husband, Brian, came to Genesis Church over 11 years ago. Uh, They came not long. Hi, Heather. There's one thing you should know about Heather. She hugs about five seconds longer than is appropriate. (laughs) And so if you see Heather, she's one of the most friendly people I know. If you see her in the lobby, she'll come up to you and she'll say hi, and she'll give you the big hug. And then when you think it's done, it's not done. It's got about five more seconds left. It's so, it, yeah, it needs to linger a little bit. Let me get your microphone here, Heather. So uh, Heather and Brian came to Genesis Church uh, not long after my wife Benita and I started attending, and that's where we met, and they've become very good friends of ours. And Heather has an incredible finding your way back to God story. Yeah. Five, four, three. Oh. Sorry. Um, She's going to hold the microphone up to her mouth so you guys can I hear her too. I teach in a school, and we just had a discussion on the appropriate length for a hug. Side, one, two, you're done. Sorry, that's not a hug. Okay, um, good morning. Uh, my name is Heather, and I've been attending Genesis for 11 and a half years. Um, my spiritual journey began, or what, what I remember, uh, my earliest rem- remembrance of my love for God was when I was in elementary school. Um, I attended Heritage Christian for about two, two and a half years, and um, they had this great picture Bible, and we had Bible story time, and we were learning about the Israelites, and I wanted to make this offering for God to let God know how much I loved him. So I drew this picture, I went in the backyard, I let it go, and there was my offering for God. Um, I just, I wanted... That, that love that I had for God as a, a child was, you know, it was that love we're supposed to have for God, all-encompassing, and it was pure. Um, and as I grew older, I started to get mixed up, and I started to lose my, um, my direction with God. Uh, I grew up in a family where we went to church every Sunday. Um, you know, we went through the, my brother and I went through the Sunday school program. I was a torchbearer through middle school. Um, and oftentimes my brother and I tried to convince my mother that we were sick and really didn't need to go to church this Sunday. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Um, but I never felt like I fit in uh, in church. Um, I never felt like, I felt comfortable with my uh, middle school group or my Sunday school class. Uh, and I really dreaded going to church because that that wasn't my God. Um, I um, felt so separate from everyone else. Um, I'm not like everyone else. If you knew what was going on with me or what was going on in my head, um, I just didn't fit in. And this feeling of separation, of being different, of not being comfortable in my skin... 
uh, continued on throughout my teenage years. And uh, I turned to alcohol and continued to make decisions uh, that kept me separated from God. Um, you know, this uh, God that I loved so much as a small child and, and just wanted to grow in relationship with him became this God who was vengeful and who was punishing and uh, was out to get me. And there was no way that this God could love me with all the things that I had done. Um, you know, it was, I had this hole that I needed to fill with God, and I didn't know how to do it. And instead, I was going to alcohol and other things to take the place of God because I didn't know how to put God in that hole and how to um, be real. Uh, it seemed like everyone that I saw, especially in a church setting, they had it all together. You know, they were perfect people. Um, they didn't have struggles, and if they did, they were, they were just little burps along the way. Uh, and here I was, just this mess. There was no way I could be welcomed into a church. Um, I finally came to a point where I was uh, ready to surrender because my way wasn't working. Um, I was ready to go to that God that I knew wasn't going to love me, uh, who knew all the places I had been and all the things that I had done. Um, I was ready to take that God because I knew I wasn't, it wasn't working with me. And there had to be something better, something bigger. And I knew God was definitely bigger than me. So uh, I joined AA, and my life slowly began to uh, fall back in place. Uh, what I realized um, as I began to get my life back in order was that who I thought God was wasn't who God really was, wasn't who God is in my life today. Um, I in preparing for this, you know, I knew this, but to put it onto paper, uh, you know, my shame and my remorse is what kept me from embracing uh, God's promise through uh, the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. And once I was able to um, wrap my arms around the fact that, you know, Jesus loves me, period. You know, it doesn't matter what I've done, what I'm going to do. Jesus loves me anyway. My job is to reach out and accept that love. Um, it took me a long time to get to that point, and it took me uh, this church and the people in this church to help bring me to that point. Um, my husband and I, uh, we got married. Uh, I had my job, first job. I had my, my sweet children. Uh, and through all of these big events in my life, I saw that my God was with me on this journey and that my God wanted good for me. Um, and what a, a blessing and a relief that is to feel like, you know, it's that song that God is for us. You know, my God is for me um, and wants what is best for me. Um, so my husband and I were looking to find a church that would help, help us grow. And we were walking our dog, and we ran into this guy named Chad. And he had this beautiful dog. I forget the dog's name, but the dog was really sweet. Almost as sweet as Chad. And he told us, you need to try this church I'm going to. It's called Genesis. And at that time, Genesis was meeting in the arbitorium, and um, I, I called, and I spoke with a person named Ben Krause, and I said to Ben, well, hi, uh, I'm an alcoholic, and I really need a church that's going to talk about God and help me grow in my spiritual relationship with God. And Ben said, you're welcome. Come on in. We'd love to have you. And wow, you know, here I just dropped this huge bomb, 
and he was ready to embrace me in love. And I, I began to see that, uh, wow, I'm welcomed for who I am. All this time of not being comfortable in my own skin with who I was and who I am. And here's a church person welcoming me and encouraging me to just be me. Um, and that's what I found with Genesis. Uh, through small groups uh, and being open with the people in my groups and being willing to listen and to be honest with where I'm really at, um, my faith and my experience with God has just continues to grow, and it continues to wrap me up um, in ways that I know that no matter what happens today, I'm going to be okay because my God and I can do this thing. Um, but I had to be willing to reach out and get out of myself and do, you know, service work and, and not be scared of people and know that it's okay. And this church and the people in this church encouraged me to not have my life together and it's okay to share it, uh, to go ahead and try to, to be a greeter or, hey, be a Gen Kids volunteer. Try that one. Um, and they welcomed me and allowed me to be a part of this church and make it uh, my family. I was really nervous to share my story today, um, and the first time I went around, it was like, you know, wow, to talk about God, I, something I love, uh, something that I'm committed to and trying to grow in, and then to share it with my church family, um, it was an honor. And the second service, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous, I can't do it again. And yeah, no, we need to let these people go to lunch soon. No, that's okay. Okay. <laughs> I talk a lot, but I just wanted to say it's been an honor to share my story. And uh, if you're not involved in a small group and if you're not um, a part of people's lives, please reach out to them because that's where I grew. What, uh, this is not a small groups Sorry. commercial, but that's okay. No, you're good. Um, uh, we'll be starting small groups in about a month, so if you want to sign back. up, come back. Um, so <laughs> Heather's going to read Luke 15, uh, verse 11 through 24, the story of the prodigal son. It starts right there. Got it. Can you do all that? Can you... I'm going to do it this way. Okay. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who had sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Kissed him. The son said to his father, Let's try it again. I'm sorry. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put, on, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For the son, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to ce- celebrate. Thanks a lot, Heather. Heather went to you, everybody. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay, Heather. I love the little pat, pat, rub the back. Um, that Heather story is so much like the story she just read. I mean, if you think about the, the God that she expected to encounter when she came back was an angry, vengeful God. And if you think about what the son was thinking he was going to run into when he comes back, um, he's probably looking for an angry, vengeful father. And that's not at all what he encounters. You know, we've been talking about, as we go through this story, there are five awakenings that appear that the son goes through. The younger son goes through these five awakenings on his journey away from his father and then back home. Uh, five awakenings that are the same five awakenings I think we experience when we're finding our way back to God. Week one, we talked about that first one, that awakening to longing. We said it doesn't matter what you think about God or church, but we all have this longing to be loved and to have purpose and meaning in our lives, a a purpose for our days, to to find meaning where there doesn't seem to be any meaning, where life doesn't seem to make sense. And we awaken to longing when we begin to realize that those longings are good things, that they're given to us by God, and they can only be satisfied in a relationship with him. But what happens is that so often we go looking to other things to do for us what only God can do. You know, Heather just talked about that. Uh, whether you're a Christian or not, the prodigal son in this story, we, we go out to find fulfillment on our own terms. Heather, like so many people, you know, look to alcohol to do that. Often we go looking for what one, one author called the three S's, sex, success, and significance. And when those things become the priority, uh, they, we let them take the place of God, and we find that they cons- consistently fail to live up to what we're expecting uh, from what we're looking to fill that longing, right? So we're, we've got this longing for something, for something more, and we look to these things that are never going to satisfy us. We left empty and dissatisfying, and that disappointment leads to our second awakening, which we call awakening to regret. In this awakening, we come to this crossroads, and it can move us in one or two directions. Whenever we run into regret, we can, we can run into sorrow, which is godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. And last week we talked about that, that that godly sorrow, Scripture tells us, leads to repentance, which brings salvation, and worldly sorrow leads to death. It leads to what we call the sorry cycle. So I, I sin, I feel this regret, and I'm sorrowful, I feel bad about it, but I don't change anything in my life. And so after a while, that regret wears off, and I sin again, and then I feel bad about it. And it's this cycle that we just keep going around and around and around, you know, in Heather's case, it led her from bar to bar to bar, from drink to drink. But some of us live it out in the casino as we bounce from slot machine to slot machine or dealer to dealer. We live it out in the mall as we go from credit card to credit card and from store to store to try to buy something that's going to fill that God-shaped hole that Heather talked about. Some of us live it out on the internet. We go to some of the darkest places and darkness consumes our minds and our thoughts and our every move. So often we get caught in this continuous pattern of searching for fulfillment on our own terms and then finding disappointment, searching again and thinking this time it's going to be different only to find that it's not any different the next time. You know, when I was a kid, I found out very early that I couldn't ride carnival rides that go around in circles. I I loved roller coasters, but anytime I would get on a carnival ride that went around in circles, well, I knew it wasn't going to end well. But when I became an adult and I got my first chance to go to the state fair as a grown-up, 
I decided to buy the little wristband that allows you to ride all of the rides at one cost. And so I rode all of the roller coasters at the Indiana State Fair, as far as that goes. You know, there aren't very many. And I decided I still wanted a bigger thrill. And so there's a ride called the Rotor. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Somebody's giggling. You know what this ride is. It is a kind of a cylinder you walk into the cylinder, there's a platform that's a floor, and then there's a fence that goes all the way around this thing, and you walk in, and you stand along the outside diameter or perimeter on the fence, and then as they start the ride, the ride starts slowly and then more quickly going around and around in circles until you're stuck to the wall. You know this ride that I'm talking about? It goes faster and faster, you get stuck to the wall, and then it eventually turns on its side so that you're going like this against the wall, right? Well, I had ridden all the roller coasters. I hadn't eaten too much fair food. I figured it was safe. I get on the rotor and within about 15 seconds, I knew that that was a bad idea. That pretty soon I felt like my lunch was going to be stuck to the wall. But we get in these cycles where we're going around and around and around and we see it and it just makes us sick to think about it. And some of us are there right now. You know, we've been through this sorry cycle. We've been through this sin and regret and sin and regret. But there's hope. There's hope for you today. There's a way out. There's a way back. As we've talked about in this series, finding your way back to God, finding your way back to God isn't a one-time thing. You know, we can wander off even after we become a Christian. And these five awakenings are something that don't just happen the first time we find our way back to God. There are awakenings that we need to come back to time and time again. It's like Heather mentioned AA. You know, AA and there are other programs that, are, that have 12 steps to help getting you uh, free from that addiction. And if you ask any alcoholic or any addict, you know, could you just go and go through the 12 steps once and be cured for the rest of your life? They would tell you, no, that's crazy. That's why most addicts uh, who end up in a 12-step program will go to meetings the rest of their lives. Because they know they need someone to be there to hold them accountable. They've got to go through those steps over and over again. Well, the five awakenings are like that too. As Dave and John Ferguson, the authors of the book, Finding Your Way Back to God, on, that we kind of base this series on, we've talked about that the last two weeks, the, the five awakenings are something we can come back to time and time again. And so if you think about it, like a 12-step program, does anybody know the first step of the 12 steps? It's, it's admitting that you're powerless over your addiction. It's admitting that you need help. It's a way of saying, I can't do this on my own. And if you talk to anybody who struggled with addiction, if you talk to any counselors that help with this, what you'll find is that they say somewhere around 70 to 80% of the victory is won in that first step. It's admitting that you're powerless, admitting that you need help. Asking for help isn't easy. If you have young children right now, you probably know that uh, they're not, sometimes they want help and sometimes they want to do things on their own, right? And so if you're going to uh, be a good parent, that means sometimes you're going to send them to school with shoes that don't match. Uh, sometimes they're going to be half untied. Sometimes you're going to send them to school with clothes, with shirts that aren't tucked in or maybe shirts that are on backwards because they want to do it themselves. You know, my girls are uh, almost teenagers now. They're 11 and 13, and uh, they're very, very good at electronics and computers and uh, things that I couldn't even imagine at that age that I would be good at. But every once in a while, dad still knows something that they don't and can help them with something, and they find it hard to believe that I would know something about an iPad or know something about a computer. But every once in a while, they'll still come and ask for help, but it takes a lot of courage for them to do that. You know, we don't always outgrow that stubbornness. As we become adults, sometimes we want to keep that stubbornness that we had as kids. Author Richard Rohr says it like this. We would rather be ruined than be changed. 
We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the present and let our illusions die. But maybe today some of you are tired of fighting. You're tired of trying to break free on your own. You're you're tired of this merry-go-round of craziness you've been living on. You know, it's that third awakening where we can find new direction. The third awakening can change the course of our future. That third awakening is awakening to help. It's awakening to help. We find that in uh, this story in verse 17, Luke 15, 17. When he came to his senses, the young son, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the young son, he comes to his senses. He decides, you know what? There's somebody that can help me. And maybe he won't treat me like he used to. But maybe I could be like one of his servants. Maybe if I turn my life around... I could come to him and he'd let me serve him, at least in that way. You know, last week we talked about the biblical word for that turning around, that word repentance. And we said that repentance has two parts to it. You change your mind and then you change your direction. Like there's there's a, a piece that has to do with our brain and there's a piece that has to do with our behavior. And so after the son came to his senses, look what he did. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. And for many of us, repentance means the same thing. It's this decision to return to our Father, to return, to come home. And so the third awakening is a real game changer. It's here that we stop trying to fix things ourselves or stop trying to fix ourselves. It's when we stop trying to prove ourselves or to find fulfillment in things. I mean, this awakening, you realize, I can't do this on my own. And so for the three weeks of this series, we've been having you pray a new prayer every week. It always starts with this, God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. And so the prayer of the third awakening is this, God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. Awaken in me the willingness to turn to you for help. And maybe some of you just need to stop right there and pray that prayer yourself right now, just in your seat. Awaken in me the willingness to turn to you for help. You know, later on in this service, we're going to give you the opportunity to do just that. Uh, When you walked in this morning, hopefully you received a card that looks like this. Hang on to that. But you may see that there's three boxes on there. You might just look through that. Because I believe, and the Lord spoke this to me this morning, I think, I believe that some of you came here to be a spectator today, but that God's got something greater for you, that he's going to be moving in your heart, and he wants an action out of you today. And so you came here just to watch. You came here just to humor somebody. You came here because it's what you do on Sunday. But the Lord wants to speak to you this morning. And some of you, before the service is over, are going to be getting up from your seat, and you won't even know why. But I believe that God's got that for you. What kind of God do we encounter when we come back home? I think that's the biggest stopping point for so many of us from from finding our way back to God. Because when when you make that turn, when you awaken to regret... And you start to make that turn, and then you awaken to help, and you realize that there's, there's help available for you. The first thought, just like Heather talked about, is what kind of God am I going to run into when I get back home? What kind of father is waiting for us? Well, it's the father in this story. Jesus tells us that as the son walked the journey home, verse 20 continues, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arm around him, arms around him, and kissed him. 
Now, I think you and I, living here in the 21st century, don't really realize what a big deal this is, that the father would run after his son. But in the first century in the Middle East, seeing a father run after anything would have been a really big deal, pretty undignified, maybe even humiliating. I mean, think about uh, what you see at that time if you watch movies or if you know anything about history. Uh, Nobody wore pants. He would have been wearing a robe, and for him to run, it means that he would have had to hike his robe up, exposing his bare legs. That would have been shameful, especially for a dignified, wealthy man. You know, you can get away with shorts at Genesis. Uh, Many of you are today. But in that culture, in that time, uh, for a father to do that probably would have been shameful. And what's more, grown men like that, they didn't run anywhere. I would have hated that culture. Nobody ran anywhere. They walked. You know, but these grown men, especially a father who was a respected, wealthy member of the community, if somebody wanted to see him, well, they come to him. He doesn't have to run to anybody. And there's something else significant about this running father. You know, as Jesus told this story, the people in the audience would have had a hard time picturing this because many of them lived in towns or villages uh, where there were people that sat at the gates all hours of the day. And so when the gates were open during the day, the elders of the village, the leaders of the village would sit at the gates and they would monitor who would come in and come out. And in a town or in a village, everybody would have known that this father had, or the son had left, that he had disgraced his father. And so if the elders of the village were sitting at the gates and this son were to come back home, they would have performed a ceremony called a kisaha. A kisaha, what they would have done is the elders, as they saw the son walking back towards the village, they would have met him at the gate, stopped him from entering the village. They would have taken a clay pot and shattered it on the ground. And they would have picked up the pieces and handed them to the son and said, you have broken our community. You're not welcome here. And they would have turned him around and sent him away. That's the reception the son might have expected. The reception that he might have deserved. But not this father. Why? Because this father is the father that Jesus knew best. His heavenly father. It's the one Jesus prayed to every day. It's the one he was always worshiping and exalting. Now here's how this father reacted. From the day his son left, he would walk out and scan the horizon, looking for any figure that looks like it might be his son. He was wondering if today might be the day when his lost child would return home. He he likely had friends and family members in his ear telling him, forget about that boy. He's worthless. He's deserted you. He's not worthy of being called your son. He's an embarrassment. It's the same kind of things that the son was telling himself. And and maybe you hear those voices in your ear sometimes. You're not worthy. You've done too many things wrong. You've been gone too long. He'll never welcome you back. That's not from God. That's not your heavenly father. Because your heavenly father doesn't stop watching. He's waiting For his son's return. He's longing for you to come back home. And when he sees his son on the horizon, what does he do? He takes off running. He humiliates himself in front of his friends and family, in front of his servants, to protect his son from the Kisaha, to protect him from being cut off from the village. Before anybody says, You're not welcome here, the father runs to catch his son and grabs him and embraces him and welcomes him home. 
Do you understand? This, this is the Father that's waiting for you. Like if you've been gone from God for a long time, you've been walking away, you're in a pattern of disobedience or bad behavior right now, this is the God who's willing to risk his reputation on you. It's the Father who's waiting for you to admit you need help, that you can't do this on your own. How will he respond? He's a God that runs to meet you. He will open his arms and forgive you and accept you no matter what you've done. He'll always take you back. You know, that image of a father running for his son always reminds me of the story of Olympic athlete Derek Redman. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, but Redman was a um, decorated 400-meter runner, and he uh, had... His career was speckled with injury, though. He had had many injuries. And by the time the 92 Olympics rolled around, he had already torn his ACL earlier that year. But it was early enough that he had healed pretty well for the Olympics. And so by the time the Olympics got here, Redmond was running really well. He won his preliminary heat. He, he qualified in the quarterfinals. And he was running in the semifinals uh, when this happened. Take a look at this. You know, I don't remember who won the gold medal that year in the 400, but I always remember that scene. And if you 
watched very closely, you could see as his father rushed onto the track to pick Derek Redmond up and, and walk with him to the finish line. He, he kept having to tell people, that's my boy. Leave me alone. That's my boy. I've got this. you have any idea what your father in heaven is thinking of you right now? How he's ready to come pick you up and help carry you across the finish line. I just wanted to share a few verses. I thought as we got to close to the, towards the end of the service, I thought I'd share a couple of verses with you. Uh, Psalm 139, uh, verse 17 and 18 says this, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake, I'm still with you. Verse, uh, in the New Living Translation, it says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. There's this quality of thoughts, these good thoughts, and a quantity, a vast sum of them. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. You know, when God looks at us, he not only thinks about us, but we move his heart. His heart goes out to us. If you ever think, you know, I've been along, I've been gone way too long. Just think it's an everlasting love. It never ends. His kindness is unfailing. And 1 John 3 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Think about this as it relates to the story of the lost son. That when he decided to come back home, he didn't decide, I'm going to come back home and I'm going to restore myself as a son of my father. He said, I'm going to come back home and I'll just be a servant. But his father lavishes such great love on him that he becomes restored. He's once again a child of God. Let me ask you this. What, what expression do you imagine was on the father's face when he embraced his son? Was he smiling? Was he laughing? What was the look in his eyes? You have that image in your mind? You realize what Jesus is teaching us in this story is that our heavenly father has that same expression on his face when one of his children come back to him. When he looks at you, when he embraces you, that's what God thinks about you. You see, when we awaken to help, when we decide to come home, we discover that help has a name, and his name is Jesus. By looking to Jesus, we discover that God is a God who is present, promising never to leave us on our own. He's a God who's full of grace, refusing to condemn us even when it's deserved. He's a God who is humble, bending down to care for our needs. He's a God who's for us, sacrificing our, his needs for our needs. Help has a name. His name is Jesus. Maybe for, for you, today is the day you come home. Today's the day you come back to God. You know, throughout this series, we've challenged you to pray that prayer. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. If you've been praying that prayer consistently, let me ask you, are, are you seeing stuff happen? Are you seeing him show up? Is he making himself known to you? Because my guess is that he is, or at least he's trying to reveal himself. Maybe today is the day that he's doing that for you. Maybe today is time for you to come home. Now, it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or how far you've run or how many times you've left. You can always come back home to God. He's a father who's scanning the horizon. He already endured the shame of the cross. And he's waiting for you to come home. If you're ready to awaken to that help today, we're going to give you a very tangible way to do that. You should have received this card when you walked in. And there's three boxes on there. You know, for the first one, some of you have never trusted Christ with your life. 
you've never made that decision that you wanted to follow Jesus. And if God's answering your prayer and making himself real to you, you need to make that decision to come home today. That's the first box on the card. You can check that box. What we're going to do is I'm going to have uh, some members of our prayer team are going to be in the back of the room. I'll be back there. Uh, so you don't have to walk to the front. But um, in a minute, we're all going to go into a time of uh, worship through music. We're all going to stand. And if you want to fill out any one of the three things on this card, you can take it to the back of the room and you can either just hand it to somebody and walk back to your seat or uh, you can uh, ask to pray with somebody. And we'll have people back there who will pray with you uh, while you do that. Uh, For others of you, maybe you've made a commitment to Christ, but you've walked away. You've been gone for a while and you're tired of this merry-go-round of craziness. You're ready to admit that you, you you just can't do this on your own anymore. It's a day to surrender once again. And so if that's you, you can check that second box and recommit your life to Jesus today. You know, surrender is not giving up as much as it's giving something to. And so you can take whatever burdens on your heart today and give it to Jesus. We're giving him our will and our heart. He's asking for us uh, to give everything, everything he's promised, he will be. That's the second box on the card. And then for some of you, your next step is baptism. This is the way that people, you know, publicly proclaim that they've made that decision to follow Jesus, that they're repenting and coming home. You know, we're going to do that in a couple weeks, as I mentioned earlier in the service on August the 30th. And if you haven't signed up for that yet, if you haven't registered, uh, you can check that box on the card. You can bring it to the back. And we'd love to take that. And if you want somebody to pray with you, we'd love to pray with you while you're back there or not, uh, too. So today we're asking some of you to step out in courage and say, I need help. I need Jesus. I'm ready to come home. And so as the band leads us in a couple of songs in a minute, we're going to stand. And as they play and lead into this great song, our prayer team is going to move to the back of the room. And uh, some of you need to fill out this card. And just at any time during this song, just take it back. And uh, as a way of marking what God is doing in your heart. Is it awkward? Yeah, probably. Does it take courage? You bet. But what you'll find is the God who runs to you and embraces you with open arms. Let's pray. God, if you're real, make yourself real to us. We pray that you would awaken in us the willingness to come to you for help. God, I'm so thankful for the story of the lost son and how it shows us that there's a way home for us. Lord, I know you're moving in the hearts of people in this room right now. I just pray that you would give them great courage, God, to come back and whether it's just to drop off their card or to to ask for prayer. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now. Encourage us. Help us to do what you'd have us to do. Help us to follow you, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.